Good evening, everybody, and a very warm welcome to all of you. My name is Gobind Nankani, Executive Director for the International Growth Center. The main session, the main point of this meeting, really, is a discussion that is going to be generated by a talk by Paul Collier with discussants, uh, who I'll introduce, I'll introduce in a moment. But Alan Winters and I want to take a few moments first to welcome all of you to this, what we think is this unique event, IGC Growth Week, that's taking place between today and Wednesday. <clears throat> Many of you have come from afar. There's some of you who've come from as far away as Mauritius, from Washington, Many who are here in London and others who've come from Nairobi, Accra, Sierra Leone, and so on. And I want to thank each and every one of you for making that effort to come here. The IGC Growth Week is an annual event we hold, we hold every year around September. And it brings together what is a virtual organization of network uh, fellows into one place for three days to share a lot of the work that has been done and to also generate a lot of insights and networking opportunities. The IGC's mission, as you know, is to bring new ideas and knowledge to shape policy ideas on growth in developing countries with a particular focus on Africa and South Asia. We have with us in these three days 250 or so participants. We have 22 sessions, we have 90 speakers. And in each one of these sessions, we try to bring different dimensions to bear. We have idea sessions, we have country sessions, we have policy sessions, and then in the evenings we have panel discussions like this, where all of these things come together. We think the IGC brings something new to the development uh, venture. We bring a strong basis in everything we advise on policy, on new ideas, frontier ideas, based on research and the most current knowledge that there is available. I think this is a great opportunity for all of us to network, for all of us to share some of our research findings, our cross-country policy insights, and most importantly, how all of these come together. Let me close by saying I hope you will take full advantage of this, these three days. Um, the most important thing is not what happens in the session rooms. It's also in the networking opportunities and the relationships that you build, that you carry forward from today and not have a situation in which you reconnect a year from now when you're back at Growth Week. We want your feedback. You will have feedback uh, opportunities to help shape Growth Week next year even better than we were able to do this year. So thank you all very much for being here. And uh, I'll turn over now to my colleague, Alan Winters, who's the chief economist for DFID, based in London. And DFID is our major funder. And in fact, the work that the IGC network does, um, which we see as a 10-year program, is funded periodically by DFID. DFID's role and understanding of our role is very clear. The IGC is independent. We do engage with DFID, so it's independence with engagement. Alan. 
Thank you very much indeed, Govind. Uh, on behalf of uh, TIFID, let me uh, welcome everybody to Growth Week and thank you all for coming uh, so far, often, uh, in, in many cases. Um, DFID is uh, fully committed to the IGC and uh, everything that it stands for, and exactly in the sense that Govind has said of in independence and engagement. Uh, we believe that economic growth is a really fundamental part of the, uh, uh, the, the mission to remove poverty, to reduce poverty in the world, and it is for that reason that we were so keen to establish a really top-rate group uh, that could help that process. We're interested in long-run growth. We're interested in how countries cope with downturns and with shocks. And we see uh, three roles which uh, have to be played and three roles which the IGC is able to play uh, in, in achieving this. Uh, the first of these is to provide developing country policymakers with demand-led, independent and cutting-edge policy advice based on the latest research. Not just potboiler textbook advice, but really smart people engaging with really important problems uh, there and then. Now, necessarily, lots of the most useful advice is rather private, uh, but among the sorts of things which the IGC has already uh, delivered is advice in uh, Ghana and Uganda about oil revenues. It's contributed to uh, macroeconomic frameworks in uh, the Ghanaian budget. It's estimated money demand models in Tanzania, and uh, I understand being asked if it will help with similar work elsewhere. And it, there's been a very important exercise mapping uh, industry in Ethiopia. That's just four of the examples. This, it seems to us, of bringing really high-quality minds to bear on pressing problems is the defining characteristic of the IGC, and uh, we're delighted uh, at the extent to which that's happened in the countries we're established, and we're looking forward uh, to extending the reach into the new countries uh, that we are starting to work up uh, now. Uh, the second element of the IGC is world-class research, uh, addressing questions that are critical to growth, and questions that are pressing and uh, said to be pressing by developing countries. You'll hear lots of that research here and now, and over the next uh, year, quite a number of the projects which the IGC started in its first year will be uh, bearing fruit, and uh, at least some of us are looking forward to these research results uh, very much indeed. The third element is uh, to build an international growth network to be the international lesson, lesson learning uh, uh, centre for the world to bring a wide range of people to focus on growth, the go-to place for economic growth. That's, I guess, the role that Growth Week plays now, and looking at the hall that's completely packed, it's really very gratifying to us uh, to see how well uh, that is going. We do believe that the IGC can become the institution in the world for developing countries to come to when they have growth issues. And we see the network as involving people at very, very many different activities and at different levels, a very broad range of players, including policymakers and academics, civil society, the private sector, and both uh, in industrial countries, but in particularly in developing countries. It's a huge delight to see so many people here this afternoon. And uh, as I said, I want to thank you all very much for coming. 
although I'm sure that you all could tell from the program that you really had to be here. It really is the most splendid three days that I could imagine. I don't know if it's for me to carry on and welcome Paul Collier, but I hope you will all with me welcome Paul Collier, who's here to talk about China's strategy for gaining access to Africa's natural resources and what this means for Africa's development. Thank you. Thank you very much. China in Africa is really big news. It's the biggest news that's hit Africa, I think, in my working lifetime. It's not just a big new player. It's the big player. And it's a very, very different player from anything we've seen before. So the first point is this is really big. I'm going to make four points as to the different modes of engagement that China has with Africa. And the first one is obviously going to be resource extraction. Now, resource extraction, extraction of natural resources, is Africa's big chance for transformative development. It's its big chance because the scale of the money involved is just going to be, is going to dwarf everything else over the next decade or so. It will dwarf aid. It will dwarf capital inflows. It will dwarf remittances. This is the big money. My favorite figure, which you'll find in my little book, The Plunder Planet, as it happens, is that if we take the average square mile of the rich countries and compare them with the average square mile of Africa, there's very different subsoil assets value underneath that square mile. Last time I spoke in the LSE, I teased the audience into guessing. I gave you the figure for the OECD, which was about $300,000 per square mile. And I teased the audience with what was the figure for Africa. Was it less or was it more? I'll not waste time doing it again. But let me astonish the people who didn't hear that by saying that the figure for Africa is not even more. It's radically less. It's about $60,000. It's about a fifth of the OECD figure. That's not because there's less down there. Why should there? These are two huge chunks of the Earth's surface, and we're looking at fundamental geological processes. It's because less has been discovered. And that massive failure of the discovery process is itself a huge economic phenomenon. By hook or by crook, and probably by crook, it will be fixed over the next decade. And so the scale of resources coming out of Africa will be massive. Multiply by five the sort of volumes we've got at the moment to get the order of magnitude that's likely. So this is already the big money for Africa, something like two-thirds of Africa's assets are natural assets. That's the known assets. Multiply by five to get to the as-yet-to-be-discovered but likely-to-be-discovered over the next decade. So that upstream potential from the discovery and extraction of natural resources is hugely important for Africa. 
dwarfs everything else. There's a concomitant downstream agenda. Because, of course, Africa's been there before in valuable resource extraction. This was the commodity booms of the second half of the 1970s, early 80s. And with a few honorable exceptions, Africa's precious little to show for that very substantial pulse of uh, resources taken out of the continent. The fundamental economics of this are not very complicated. Doing it gets complicated, but the fundamental economics, so you're taking natural assets out from under the ground, and you've got to end up with invested assets on top of the ground. Now, doing that is really complicated, but China is again unique in being at both ends. It's a massive player in the upstream, the extraction process, and it's equally a massive player, new player in the downstream of putting those assets in place. So it's big in both and it's unique in operating in both. And now let's have a look at what that resource extraction involves with China. And the, the first is it brings some very, a very good thing, which um, in one word is competition. Um, there was a, a cozy club of resource extraction and China's uh, entry has busted that cozy club and that's very healthy. That competition has of course driven up prices um, spectacularly but it's more than just price competition. As we discovered during the global crisis um, the, the, the global market in commodities is not the quite as a classic uh, spot clearing market that we'd imagined. Uh, It's a little bit more like manufacturing markets than we'd thought. Um, Long term contracts, quantity matters as well as price. Um, So that's the first thing, competition. A new player has had very important and positive effects. Um, Let's have a look at the structure of the contracts. Now, the structure of the contracts breaches Fiscal Economics 101 textbook principles because Fiscal Economics 101 textbook principles says gather all the government revenues into the budget and then when you've got the gathered pot, you think about how to spend it. And that preserves all the marginal efficiencies, a dollar spent on this is the same as a dollar spent on that at the margin and so on. That's textbook fiscal 101. And China's contracts, uh, the structure of the contracts breaches that because uh, the same deal that generates the revenues decides how to spend them. It's resource extraction in return for infrastructure. Now, that breaches principle 101 fiscal bad Are there any redeeming features? Well, I'm going to suggest that there are two redeeming features, but to get to them, you have to go beyond textbook 101 fiscal. So let's turn a few more pages. In fact, indeed, let's pick up a more complicated book. And the first big advantage of these deals, of the structure of these deals, comes in the, uh, the, the resolution of the time inconsistency problem. Imagine yourself to be 
uh, a finance minister of an African country. Now, for some people here, that won't be very difficult to imagine. <laughs> um, harder for me than for them. Right? So, um, and you've read textbook Fiscal 101, and if you haven't read it, you, it's been read out to you repeatedly by the IMF teams every time they come into the country. Right? Um, and you think, that sounds a really good idea, this Fiscal 101. I get the money in, and then that's depleting the natural asset base, and I know that any responsible and ethical government is going to offset that depletion of the natural asset base by investing in other assets. Right? I know that. Uh, and then I think, so according to Fiscal 101, I just go and tell that to the Cabinet. And they'll do it. They'll agree with me. And then you start to think, oh my God. Right? Um, there are 30 people there, all representing spending ministries, and there's me. Right? Uh, and I'll say, the good news is we've got, you know, $2 billion of natural resource extraction coming in. And we need to spend that on investment. And the bad news is that the Minister of Defence will look meaningfully at the President and say, I think we ought to raise military salaries. Right? Or if we're going to invest, let's invest in housing for the military. Right? To take a hypothetical example. <laughs> Sorry, that's an inside joke, to be <laughs> cruel. Um, um, in other words, the finance minister might think, I just can't deliver textbook 101. If, I, if the revenue comes in for the budget, I won't be able to control the political battle of how it goes out. And the chances of this actually being spent on investment, on, on any sort of useful investment, are very low. And the, the neat thing about the Chinese deal is that uh, the, same, the one signature locks me in. It's a commitment technology. It locks me in to using these resources for investment, for infrastructure investment. Right? And that might be a very sound thing to do. So that's one big advantage. There's a more subtle advantage. Um, and this comes out of some of the work of, of people like Tim Besley. Um, uh, Tim's latest work argues pretty convincingly, I think, that um, the sine qua known of uh, building an effective and capable state uh, is, is that the state needs to uh, build tax capacity. It needs to have a strong tax revenue base because only if it's got a strong tax revenue base has it got an interest in the growth of the economy because with a strong tax revenue base it's got a, it, it takes a share of the growth of the economy. So that's a a political economy point. Right? Now, if that's right, then uh, resource extraction is potentially very bad news because this is big revenue flowing into the government budget without any taxation of the rest of the economy. Yeah. And, you know, resource extraction can get very big relative to the rest of the economy in a lot of these small economies. So it's quite possible that the, the political economy is such that you don't actually need any other revenues. And so you never build this tax system 
which gives you the state a share of future economic growth. And so you've no interest in building future economic growth. The, the Besley theory is you build a tax system and that gives you an incentive to provide the public goods such as uh, property rights, contract enforcement, which then grow the economy. Right? And now we come turn back to this Chinese model and it's actually quite attractive again. Just think. If I was the, the finance minister and I'd read Besley, then I'd say... This, this is another big win because the revenue never comes in. I if, if I'm a government, I still need revenue. I can still build a tax system. Yes, the resource extraction translates into investment, but it's a direct thing. It's a bypass of state revenue. And so, yes, I need revenue for all sorts of things. I've got to build uh, that revenue base. So, the structure of the contracts this unique um, resource extraction in return for infrastructure, although it breaches fiscal 101, I think has these two very positive features. That it resolves that, it gives the commitment technology to the government and uh, it uh, avoids the problem of killing off the need for taxation. That's the structure of the contracts. Now let me turn to the process of the contracts. Now, the process of the contracts you can look at in two different lights. Um, the, uh, the president of China went round Africa two or three years ago saying, we won't ask any questions. Right? And the, uh, the, the, the kind interpretation of that is to say, well, that's very trusting, that we're getting away from any sniff or smell or taint of conditionality. This is African resources, and what the Africans do with their money is up to Africans. It's nothing to do with outsiders. We will dig out your copper if you sell us the rights, and what you do with the money, that's up to you. If you want uh, infrastructure, that's up to you. You sign, you, we'll sign, and there you go. Right? We won't ask any questions about that. We'll just build an infrastructure, and that's that. So that's the favorable gloss, that it's trusting... It's non-conditional. Um, the, the, bad, the bad side interpretation is that this is a bit of opportunism, um, that it's uh, going into situations where um, opaque deals, corruption can thrive, um, uh, and at its worst, at its worst, it's entering into deals which are manifestly illegitimate. Um, and to give you one very concrete example of that, uh, the big Chinese deal in Guinea, um, or about uh, 18 months ago or so, where, um, if you remember, there was a coup in Guinea, a pretty ghastly coup, uh, a young army captain shoots his way to power, um, and then there are street protests from pro-democracy demonstrators mass street protests and he guns them down he, he murders 157 people right? and then two weeks later so as a result of, of this coup and the, the, this, this appalling behavior the African Union to its credit does not recognize this regime so this is an unrecognized and manifestly illegitimate regime Two weeks after this murder, 
mass murder, the Chinese fly in and sign a $7 billion resource extraction deal with the government. And if that's not illegitimate, um, what is? So the structure of the contract seems to me as an economist actually to have a lot of good features in it despite breaching fiscal 101. The process of the contracts has one good feature, this um, that we're not no longer in the business of conditionality, but it's a tainted process. It's got it slithers into corruption and illegitimacy. What is missing? What is missing, I believe, is um, is, is, is a cleaner process. And the, the process that I favor um, is auctions in which what is auctioned off, if this is what the government wants, is mineral rights extraction rights are auctioned off in return for infrastructure. And the auction contest is then along the dimension of infrastructure, how much infrastructure will be provided working down a specified government list of priorities rather than in the dimension of money. Now that has um, that auction structure has two hugely desirable features. One is it turns a monopolist into a competitive process. The problem with China, in my view, is not the structure of its contracts. It's that it's the only one doing them. And that could be resolved if there was an open competitive process in which other consortia got together. There could be a British consortium, French consortium, an American consortium, what have you. What would these consortia be the same as what the Chinese are doing. What the Chinese consortia are is actually it's even more subtle than just uh, a resource extraction company combined with a construction company. There's an aid element as well. At the moment the aid element is deeply opaque because the terms of the contracts can't be teased out. But if we had these consortia of construction, resource extraction, aid, along a, a single dimension of how much infrastructure was provided for, for in return for a specified set of resource extraction rights, then the winner would be revealed as the best value. The contracts could then stay opaque, as it were. The transparency doesn't come from being able to see the details of the contract. They come from the process by which the contracts are won. Let me move from resource extraction to my second um, distinctive feature of the Chinese engagement with Africa um, which is this provision of infrastructure Um, and the why is that important in itself even if it wasn't linked to resource extraction why is it important well first off because it's been a neglected sector Um, in about the mid-1990s, the international donor community, which had traditionally focused on infrastructure provision, got bored with it. And they thought they were being made redundant by um, the, the go-go private sector, financial sector. They thought that 
you know, the Goldman Sachs of this world, as Allah Dambiza, would fly in and finance all the infrastructure in Africa. And so, um, so they'd be redundant doing that. And anyway, what they really needed was, was votes from Western taxpayers. And Western taxpayers were not terribly excited by infrastructure. They were much more excited by child immunization and getting little kids into primary school. And so what emerged from the mid-90s onward was a social agenda. Spend aid on a social agenda, walk away from infrastructure. So the donors walked away from infrastructure, but unfortunately the Goldman Sachs of this world didn't walk into it. It was too scary for all sorts of reasons that anybody who's listened to Paul Romer will know about. Right? And here he is. Um, so there was a standoff. The money for infrastructure fell apart. And yet, the, and yet so, did, so did African infrastructure. So African infrastructure was decaying and the money going to build new infrastructure was declining. So it was a neglected sector. Not only that, but it is potentially the key bottleneck sector in the growth process. The growth process is first and foremost about investment. Investment comes in two forms. Investment goods come in two forms. Equipment and structures. Equipment is internationally tradable. Structures are not. Structures are non-tradable capital goods. That is, they have to be in the sense they have to be produced within the country. You can't import a building. And yet structures and equipment are complements <coughs> in the production process. And so you can't have a growth process, an effective growth process, which only has equipment investment. Yeah? Think trucks and roads. You import a lot of trucks, but there are no roads. The return on those trucks rapidly goes down. So, here's a bottleneck sector because it's, the, the, the structures have to be domestically produced. Over the long period of African stagnation, the, the miserable three decades when Africa stagnated, investment was very low and therefore the sector producing the non-tradable capital goods withered away. The construction sector, which is the sector doing that, the construction in sector in Africa became tiny. There were very few firms. The skills atrophied. No firms, no skills. And now, along come the Chinese. And what do they offer? They, for the first time, they offer the possibility of turning structures into pretty close to being a tradable good. You don't import the buildings, but the Chinese model is you import everything, including the labor, all the skills, the whole skill set that makes that building. And so, if you think about it as an economist, the supply curve in the construction sector is flattened as a result of the Chinese. And that is analytically enormously important in the growth process. You break that bottleneck. Uh, not only that, are they operating on this new model of everything imported, but they're a very efficient, low-cost operator. They're fast, they're cheap, as far as we can see. Again, it's an opaque area which hasn't properly been studied. But as far as we can make out, 
They're fast and cheap. So there's the upside of the Chinese in this upstream activity of providing, of breaking this bottleneck. And there are two downsides. One is that the Chinese importing everything, including all the workers, has a very clear downside, which is that you don't build employment and the skill base. And that's a, potentially a really big problem because resource-rich driven growth has few transmission mechanisms onto the well-being of ordinary people. This is its big problem. It has to run basically through state spending in some shape or form. And the one exception to that is going through the construction sector labor market. Jobs for ordinary people that's the key transmission onto the directly onto the income earning opportunities of, of, of ordinary people. And so the Chinese package, the, the plus is it flattens the supply curve, the minus is that comes at a, at a big cost. No jobs. Just think in post-conflict settings where these bottlenecks are most intense, but what you need in these post-conflict settings is jobs especially for young men who are the people most likely to be employed in the construction sector. The shadow price of young male labor in a post-conflict setting is negative because if these people are not employed, it's not that they sit at home watching television, it's that they're bloody dangerous. Right? And so having a total bypass of jobs is not a healthy thing. The second problem for the of the Chinese model is that it's a turnkey operation. It builds these great set pieces of infrastructure and then hand over the end. Contract completed, bye-bye. And that's a real problem. Is that speculation? No, we've seen it before. At least I've seen it before. It's been around so long. But the, the Chinese did this years ago with uh, Tanzania and Zambia. Uh, in Tazara, the, the fantastic railway from Zambia through, up through Tanzania. Um, the, an amazing infrastructure project of this time. I see there's, there's Zambians in the audience now, there's surely some Tanzanians as well. Uh, is Tazara the great lifeline that Zambia uses to get its copper out to the world market? No. Right? no. Right? So that, that turnkey mode of operation has failed in the past and will fail in the future. That has to be rethought. Right? There has to be a lot of building capacity to run these things as well as building. In fact, the harder part is not building them, it's running and maintaining them. Um, I've only got five minutes, so let me skim through the last features of Chinese engagement which is not just in the resource extraction sector and the construction sector, it's as a massive source of capital inflow and as a massive source of labor inflow. Capital and labor are flooding in from China. There's huge financial capital on the edge of flooding in through sovereign wealth funds. Um, 
which can be used in the Chinese model and are committed to being used for, for mega projects. Those mega projects are badly needed, so it's a very exciting phenomenon. But um, the Chinese at the moment, I fear, are not what you might call fully informed investors. They know little of the environments in which they are investing. And that potentially carries risks. Of course, it carries risks to them, but it also carries risks to the uh, recipient. And so what's, what's needed now is to build up more informed Chinese investors. On labor inflow, I think this is the most potentially problematic area. There's only one number that everybody repeats, which is that 750,000 Chinese are in Africa. Um, uh, and and we, everybody cites the same source. Um, so it might be wildly wrong. It's more likely to be an underestimate than an overestimate. Um, what, what, what is happening here is settlement as opposed to normal immigration, if, if, you could, if I can make that distinction. It's people coming as a community and um, not really um, uh, integrating in, into, the, into African society. Um, they are specialized in commercial niches and this is, to my mind, potentially dangerous. Um, we've seen these dangers elsewhere in Asia. Think of the race riots back in the 1960s in Malaysia. We've seen it in Africa. Um, think of uh, Idi Amin and the, and the Asian community uh, in, in Uganda. And so what's missing here, I think, is some hands-on African policy that actually says immigration is always a difficult social phenomenon to handle and we're going to have strategies to handle that. We're not just going to let this uh, happen in a policy vacuum. Finally, in my last minute, um, let me pan back to where I started. China is the big operator in Africa now in all these dimensions. If you look at the international development agencies, you'd never believe it. You'd never believe it. Yeah? Um, when I was at the World Bank, which is a little while ago now, so things might have changed, but when I was at the World Bank, um, you know, I, I don't parody. Um, the bank paid more attention to, what the, to, 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 to Denmark than it did to China. Uh, Denmark was very fussed about Africa for perfectly legitimate reasons and its voice was really heard and it was really integrated into consultation and decision process uh, and China wasn't. Um, President Wolfensohn had the great idea of appointing one Chinese MD um, who was promptly sacked by the next president of the World Bank and replaced by a New Zealander which in Sheer geopolitics must be count as one of the less, wide, less shrewd geopolitical moves of, the, of modern times. Um, the, what's missing? And let me close with um, a very self-serving example of the Natural Resource Charter, which a number of us have been building, building 
Natural Resource Charter is an attempt to build a public information system for the management of natural resources. And it's a website. You just Google naturalresourcecharter.org and there it is. Now, in building that organization, we have a board with total power over what happens. And that board is made up as follows. It's chaired by uh, a Mexican, former president, Ernesto Zidio, and he has four board members under him. A Chinese, a Latin American, Middle East, African. The Africans may be there. Not a Dane in sight. <laughs> that has to be the future of the international organizations for Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul, for that very stimulating talk. I think Paul has not shied away from making the basic point that in spite of what many think, China is a good story for Africa. He's also been very open about the downside risks. And it's now time for us to turn to our discussants. Uh, Chris Alden is our first discussant. Uh, Chris Alden is... Uh, is here at LSC at the, at the International Relations uh, sorry, my note? <laughs> International Relations Department. He has recently published a book on China and Africa, in which he has tried to demystify some of the very many misconceptions about that relationship. And I turn now to Chris to share some of his thoughts. I hope in the discussion, the discussants will talk about some of the downsides as well, the whole question of value for money the question of governance, the question of uh, what will it take for African countries to actually get the benefits on the win-win side of Paul's story. Chris? Thank you very much. Uh, I think uh, just to, to build on a follow-up from uh, Paul Collier's uh, spe uh, speech or talk, I think it's, it matters that China is a developing country. It matters, and that's, that's part of the, the, the reason it's approached Africa in a different way than traditional donors from the OECD countries. It understands that infrastructure is the framework, hard, the hardwiring, <coughs> hardware rather, that is necessary, not the, not the software of policymaking. You're not going to get anywhere without the infrastructure first. And that, that, I think, informed their approach because they themselves lived that development experience, and they're transferring that experience to Africa. To unpack some of the particulars that were, were with the China-Africa relationship and the things that Paul has picked up on, um, I, I, I wanted to focus on the infrastructure deals. One of the concerns that I would have is that too many of these infrastructure deals are linked directly to resource extraction themselves. It's a railroad to a particular mine, uh, it's, uh, which no doubt about it, in the absence of any railroad, in the absence of any road, is necessary. You can't, markets won't work without the, without the communication and uh, ability to move goods back and forth, absolutely. But, but China has to go further than that, I think. That's what, that's what we are looking for from China. The employment creation issue has been mentioned, skills transfer, the use of Chinese companies and Chinese finance and Chinese labor very much uh, reflects an almost oversupply within the Chinese domestic setting, and it's part of its going out policy to to give exposure to companies in these in these sectors, to give uh, laborers an outlet 
the oversupply of laborers in the rural sector, an outlet for employment, but in this case outside of China itself. So I think that this has a downside and is one of those problems that African governments need to address in their building that relationship with China. Recurrent costs as well. These deals, how long are the resources going to last and will the road last beyond that and who's going to pay for it, that sort of thing. Another point to pick up on, again, echoing some of the things that Paul said, the transparency of the deals are by and large not transparent. And it's a concern. It's a concern because on whether one is getting the value for money, one cannot be truly assessed without understanding what the nature of the deal itself is. There's also a concern about accumulation of debt. We've gone through the arduous HIPAA process and take a country like Zambia, had its debt scrubbed as it were, and then it's moving into some very high profile deals with Chinese banks, Chinese government. I think this also needs to be watched carefully. I also think it's worth mentioning just in passing that there are many Chinas here. When we talk about China, the Ex-Im Bank versus the case that Paul was mentioning in Guinea, the CIF, the China International Fund, one has a commitment to best practice within the import-export banks with fellow import-export banks. The other one, the CIF, is noted for being deeply secretive. And no surprise perhaps that it selects a Guinea to interact with, one that an Ex-Im Bank wouldn't. So I think this is important to flag. I think there's a concern here on traditional donors. Absolutely, the Chinese have identified, particularly in a post-conflict setting, the procedural conditionalities that are attached to getting finance quickly to the country and turning that finance into a road that people can use. It's far too long, that time period. So reducing those, as the Chinese have, is important and something that the donor community and the banks can learn from. But the question is, is the impact of China and Africa going to change not just procedural barriers, lower procedural barriers, but is it going to reduce commitments to things like governance? And I think that matters because when you come to questions of transparency, when you come to questions of infrastructure deals that have no African employment creation side to them, part of the reason that is the case is poor governance on the part of African governments. African governments that care less about the development implications or opportunities of China and more about perhaps some other features of the financing that might be there. So I think that it's important to have retained that commitment to governance, to keep not just lower procedural standards but raise governance standards and maintain those on the part of traditional donors. My last point is to say that China is, as of two years ago, the second largest trading partner. It's probably going to be, and the statistics are in, the largest trading partner for Africa. But the question is, is it going to be Africa's best development partner? I think it can do better than what it is doing now, and I certainly hope that we reconvene in a couple of years and can say that with certainty. Thank you. Thank you.
I'll turn next to Alan Winters, who you've already been introduced to, who has some thoughts to share with us on this. Thank you, Govind, and thank you, Paul. It's always a huge pleasure to listen to Paul. He's immensely persuasive. And I have to say that whenever I do find anything to disagree with, it's always three or four days later. So I'll be in touch. My comments here and now, I guess, are going to be perhaps a little bit anodyne. Let me just pick up a few of the points which Paul's presentation has sort of suggested to me. I think the notion that one is, in a sense, doing a barter operation, one swapping resources for infrastructure, is a very interesting one. Most economists find barter a seriously worrying issue. However, if you've got such a shortage of infrastructure that it's obvious that you need to spend some money on, there is a sense in which doing some barter for the inframarginal units, the ones that you're sure you're going to need, there's no sort of decision that has to be taken further, is potentially quite a sensible process and is almost consistent with fiscal 101. The worry arises when you get up to the marginal point where someone wants to trade infrastructure against schools or against health services or social protection or what have you. And then, of course, it does become very much more difficult. So at least part of the issue is that one's reaction to this, it seems to me, must depend a bit on how much of it goes on. One can have, in a sense, too much of a good thing. It can be a thoroughly good thing to start with, but there comes a point where it's starting to become rather distortionary. I think that the idea of locking in by the finance minister is something that, as a trade policy scholar, I relate to very directly. A very large amount of international trade policy is precisely about this thing, making commitments, signing things before your colleagues in the cabinet get to understand, so that, indeed, your hands are tied when they come and beat up on you. And so it seems that I find that an extremely plausible story. It certainly is also the case, as Paul has attributed to Tim Besley, but also many other scholars now, Mick Moore, for instance, at IDS, have very much brought home to us that the ability, the need and ability to tax the population is one of the things that keeps governments reasonably honest. It's also one of the other things that keeps people engaged with the government in not necessarily a cheerful way, but at least in a constructive way, rather than just sort of denying all legitimacy to the government. Now, I think legitimacy lies at the point that Paul brought up about the process whereby these contracts are signed. And, you know, as so often, I mean, I think Paul really put his finger on a very interesting point, that it's not that one wants transparency in the sense of being able to read a contract and see how corrupt it is or inefficient it is, if there is nothing that you can do about it. And that, therefore, transparency in the sense of revelation of preferences through a sort of bidding mechanism seems like an extremely sensible process. There is one thing, a sort of technical issue, that worries me a little bit about this. Nothing stopped other people from making these offers to the African countries, but no other country did make them. 
Now, is that just because uh, the, uh, uh, the Chinese are smarter, they've got more money uh, to spare, they've got more desperation to get natural resources, or is it in some sense that they invested even in finding these opportunities and specifying how they should be, uh, be written? In other words, it's not immediately clear to me that it's possible to get the Chinese to design the deal for you, so much minerals uh, for so much infrastructure, and then put it out to auction uh, free of cost. The Chinese have in some sense acquired, uh, if not a right, at least uh, some sort of interest in that. So if you want to have market processes which are entirely even-handed, where lots of people bid for something uh, without any interest, then you've got to find some way of, sort of constructing that market, creating the specie, uh, creating the contract, and I think one needs to do that. The, the, the real issue uh, over these contracts is exactly the issue that we confront all the time, in fact, in development, and that is, who speaks for the people? What is the legitimacy of the government? And it's not just about infrastructure for resources. It is about where do you put the tertiary hospital? Does it go in the posh suburb of uh, the capital city? Well, it always does, but where do you put the second one? The question is, uh, if you have governments, if the decision-taking process is one that really pays very little regard to the welfare of the people, you're going to get lots of things wrong. And essentially, it seems to me that that's really uh, what this is about, that unless you can be sure that the government is... Uh, in a sense speaking on behalf of the country, uh, then there's lots of reasons to worry that one's going to get the contract wrong. One of the ways around that is again a, in a sense a piece of time consistency that somehow you get governments to commit to auction stuff uh, because in that way they will get um, a sort of a, uh, they'll bypass as it were their own biases as well as bypassing the risks of being ripped off by their partners. I'm sure it's right that infrastructure is a key sector for growth. Um, it is important not to think that it's the only thing that matters. I, I know that Paul knows better than that, but uh, development of, I think probably of all branches of uh, economics and uh, possibly public policy is subject to fads and fashions. And we do swing a little bit from infrastructure doesn't matter to infrastructure is all that matters. And the truth to anyone who thinks about it, we know that it's in between. But let me pose one of the sort of areas in between that seems to be potentially quite important. Uh, and Paul mentioned roads and trucking. Very interesting work in the World Bank that suggested uh, that building roads in West Africa is not going to be terribly useful in terms of increasing trade or increasing commerce because until you demonopolize the trucks industry, all you'll do is cut the time that the goods take uh, to travel and increase the profits of the monopoly truckers. So you do need to have sort of soft infrastructure. You do need to get regulation right uh, in, in an important way. Uh, that's the example that occurs to me, but my guess is that there probably are many other uh, similar examples. So again, in a sense, the issue is not only... Um, how, how, how do we get the infrastructure uh, built, but how, how do we get policymakers or communities or whoever in a sense to get soft infrastructure, to get a structure whereby it can be used uh, very effectively. Uh, Chris mentioned the question of debt relief. Uh, it certainly has been something that has exercised many people um, in the multilateral 
institutions that having struggled against debt relief for decades and then eventually come round to it and worked hard to deliver debt relief, they find it very galling that companies immediately go off and apparently get in hock to the Chinese who never contributed to that debt relief. There's some truth in those worries, but remember that the purpose of debt relief is so that countries can borrow again. The purpose of bankruptcy for people is to get people back into the market borrowing and investing and so on. So I think it's certainly not the case that you say, look, hell, we gave these people debt relief and it's ridiculous they go out and borrow. It's much more a question of is that borrowing sensible and sustainable. There is, of course, a public good element to borrowing. The whole debt crisis, in a sense, was about the fact that one country didn't know, we didn't know who borrowing countries were borrowing from, how much they were in debt and so on. And the very fact that I knew that if they paid Paul off, they wouldn't be able to pay me off actually made me reluctant to lend or made me scrounge to get my money back prematurely. So there is a sense in which everybody who has an interest in Africa in terms of debt already or a willingness to lend has some interest in the extent and, I guess, the terms of debt that Africans take out with China. But I don't see that as being a particularly Chinese issue. It's just a generic issue about many lenders lending to borrowers. Finally, Gobin mentioned value for money. Many of you will have noticed that this is a little bit of a theme true to the British government. I mention it at least every ten minutes, otherwise they fire me from business. One of the points about tradable commodities, internationally tradable commodities, is that value for money in some sense becomes quite straightforward. You want a bridge? Whoever can provide a bridge of the technical specification required cheapest, that's the value for money. It doesn't become a complicated issue. Now, it becomes much more complicated if you think there are spillovers. And in a sense, the worry about the sort of build, operate, transfer sort of model which the Chinese are moving towards is that the spillovers are very light. But I think, again, it's important to recognize that if you are desperately short of infrastructure and somebody will build this stuff pretty cheaply and pretty efficiently, that is prima facie a fairly good reason to go with them. And we absolutely shouldn't let ourselves become hung up on all of the spillovers that might be there if only there could have been a local firm or a nice Danish firm, because, get real, there won't be. So I think, again, in a sense, I think very much like Paul, that's a matter of maintaining some balance. I think the Chinese have a very robust attitude towards getting stuff done. And this, as Chris sort of, I think, alluded to, is partly they have developed in the most remarkable way over the last 40 years by getting stuff done. And I think that one of the attractions to very poor countries in Africa is that the Chinese very naturally come along with fewer of what I hope I'm permitted to call Danish issues to worry about the environmental, the labor standards, and so on. We may find that upsetting in Western Europe, and indeed some absolutely ghastly things do go on in labor markets around developing countries. But when you're living on $600 a year, then some of that stuff does look fairly luxurious. 
So again, it's very important to us, I think, when we agonize about whether uh, the Chinese are doing thing, things appropriately, we get that measured against countries that are, whose populations are extraordinarily poor. These are not, uh, this is not us, and it is not the things uh, that necessarily exercise us. So all told, uh, it seems to me that for sure there are things to worry about. For sure the Chinese in 10 years' time will have decided they haven't got it completely right. Um, but uh, in terms of what uh, China's engagement with Africa has brought, it really has brought uh, the potential of many advantages and some things to watch. So thank you. <laughs> I'm going to double up and be a discussant for just a minute or two and then we can open the floor. And what I want to do is really look at the, the issues laid out from, from an African perspective. And I want to talk about three things. One, what are Africans' views on this issue, these issues? What have Africa's responses been? And how can Africa force China to be a better development partner? I think African views have stacked themselves up quite, quite uh, clearly. Consumers in African countries are elated with the imports of manufacturers from, from China. And the evidence of that is in the trade flows. Governments themselves, I think, also, for the kinds of reasons that have already been given, see themselves as, 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 as welcoming of China overall. But you turn to the other side of the, of the table and you find a lot of resistance from industry. Industry, particularly manufacturing industry, for good or bad reasons, arguing about deindustrialization taking place, even in areas like textiles, which you would expect for low-income countries to be an area of growth. Labor, for the kinds of reasons Paul has given, feel left out of all of this, the Chinese labor coming, and the Chinese, Chinese labor have, have standards which many African labor markets find quite oppressive. So you have a strong resistance from, from labor unions and from just the, the general public about, about labor. You look at the, the number of 750,000, or, or that's perhaps an underestimate, these are made up not just of construction workers. We have traders. In Ghana, for example, you go to Makula Market, every third trader is a Chinese person selling Chinese wares. And it goes to some of the problems that uh, Paul mentioned about Africa not having a strategic immigration policy on this issue. But again, you have a lot of resistance from traders. And let me just mention that all of this has gotten crystallized in a lot of opposition from civil society organizations, which have tried to bring to the fore all of these negatives. So the debates in African countries are much, much more polarized than perhaps you've heard on this, on this panel. And one person who's written about this and done that well with all its you know, ups and downs is Adama Gay, who's a Senegalese journalist who's tried to put all of this in a recent book, which you might want to look at. What have Africa's responses been? My sense is the one country that seems to be doing best in terms of getting the win-win balance right on the continent is South Africa. South Africa has been able to negotiate voluntary restraints on textile um, imports from China into South Africa. 
South Africa has invested in beer manufacturing industries on mainland China, and it's really coming up as a partner. Now, a lot of this has to do with capacity in South Africa and how South Africa sees its own role in the global economy. But I think South Africa does point a way of, of what other African countries may wish to do more of. I think the general point that Paul, the specific point Paul made about immigration, uh, about there not being yet a strategic approach to it, is a point you can generalize. It's very clear that China has an Africa policy. Some have described it as aid is business. It's certainly not philanthropy. What is not clear is whether Africa and African countries have developed their own China policy. I think the infatuation with dealing with some of the time and consistency problems and so on have, have been very tempting and seducing. But there's now a need to have African countries also work to make China a better development partner, which is my third point. I think the capacity within African governments to look through these contract details and figure out what is in their advantage, what is not in their advantage, to, dis, to, to, to debate hardly, sorry, in hard terms, some of the clauses there is, is uneven across countries, but it needs to be built up in a big way. When Paul talks about investing and in investing, yes, infrastructure, but also investing and in investing in the soft human capital that ministries and agencies in African countries need to build up. So let me conclude by saying in many ways the ball is also in the African court that there's a need for African governments to raise their act. There's a need for civil society organizations to force governments to take on some of these other strategic issues. South Africa shows the way some other countries probably do, uh, but there's a lot to be done. But all said and done, I would still go ahead and agree with Paul and, and the other discussants that the influence of China on the continent is on a net basis positive much more can be gained if African governments and countries would do even more for themselves. Thank you. We have, we have time for a number of questions from the floor, and I welcome your comments and questions. Uh, Tunde, please. Uh, uh, Gobind has already mentioned that there is the debate uh, in Africa, it's, it's, which is very complex. Um, for some of us who have been engaged in that debate, um, one of the most difficult issues is the, what I call the incentive problem. Um, how do you get the African governments to do certain things that you all agree they should do? Um, meaning, for example, suppose that you see a deal, even if it is arranged via corruption, you know that they could have done better. Um, and now some of us want to revert to the situation of simply putting it that way as a second best solution. <clears throat> meaning, for that deal, you could have done better. We don't go and tell them that we know that you got some corruption out of it, money out of it, but you just tell them that, look, the Chinese bought you out very cheaply. You could have done better. That's the second best approach. The first best approach is, the, is, is getting the Africans to do, quote, unquote, the right thing. But then it's not easy to see 
how you get them to do the right thing. You can work through civil society and so on, but that is not so easy. Um, then, then there's the second point. Isn't it true that the Chinese also in their own development use some of this approach, the butter approach whereby they got something from somebody else on a butter basis? I think that historically is the case. Yes, I think my comment relates to what Tunia just said. Um, maybe you can help us. I, I think there are maybe a way of categorizing the countries is there are countries that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Uh, and those are the ones that you can probably, IGC and others can probably help because there's a need for technical inputs. There are those where the spirit is willing and the flesh, well, if the spirit is not willing, then of course it matters little what the flesh is going to do. And, and those are, that's the political uh, side where there isn't really the desire to secure a good deal. Now, first, I think you could help us by just giving us a rough idea of where, from your knowledge and from uh, from your your experience, wh where different African countries fit, because the strategies that one would want to take differ. I think this issue of negotiating um, contracts and deals goes far beyond the issue of China. Um, I worry a lot that we're not really learning the lessons. Uh, in terms of resource extraction uh, in Africa. And the second point, and I think it's, it's really important that what you said, sir, about uh, China, that we talk about China. Actually, there's many, many Chinas, and, and there are many kinds of Chinas in Africa. Uh, some of the, the companies that are active are state-owned enterprises that are really not particularly functional and, and viable, even in China, who, for political reasons, are, are guided and directed uh, into um, uh, the, the African continent. So again, I mean, the, we, we probably need a strategy which, which factors in the kinds of African countries and the kinds of China we're dealing with. But I think maybe you could, you could share some, some insights for us and, and give us a little bit more what you see in that regard. Can you identify your place in your, yourself, please? And I'd like everyone else to do that. Uh, it's very hard, but anyway, my name is Chukwe Mecca Chikazir. Uh, by and large, I'm Sierra Leonean. <laughs> yes, my name is Mr. Bonfer from Sustainable Development based in Oxford. I had recently a mission for the European Union as team leader for evaluation of all the programs on environmental side in Africa. I realized that what European Union is doing now, especially with Lisbon strategy, is to put another Europe in Africa. So they start to put the president of uh, African Union Commission, the president council, the commission of Africa, the regional uh, the organization, the regional REC, regional economic organization in Africa. And at the same time, they go to the, let's say, national level. Now, my question is, we have this kind of approach from Europe that has failed from Europe to build Europe. Now, they are going to translate in Africa. The other approach, the other model is the Chinese model, that I would like to call more some kind of fighting, firefighting fire approach. You have a problem, you solve the problem. What Professor Collier says, and I agree with him, I think you need more an approach from bottom, from really know, let's say, the situation of Africa, start building from both with real data, build some kind of, let's say, database where you have all the information. You can have it. They are spread it. 
I was involved inside that area. I was with the different government in South Africa. And they're very much, they would like to have this bottom-up approach and develop focusing more towards the strategy, more than firefighting or top-down approach. Thank you. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to get some from the back. Yes, please. Hello. Uh, thank you very much. Um, my name is Olu Ajakaye. I work for the AERC. I just want to thank um, all the speakers for actually addressing an issue that AERC has actually been engaging in for the past 18 months. We have, we have just concluded uh, the studies. The, the point that uh, I think resonates very well uh, with, with our study is the fact that China is the big thing now in Africa. China is here. You cannot avoid it. The question, therefore, is what should you do to maximize the opportunities and avoid the challenges or deal with challenges? That's the thrust of the, of, of the study. And I think the presentations today have actually reinforced that. Uh, maybe apart from you know, complaining about the behaviors of China, what we may be doing is what should Africa the government, the people, the business community, I mean, uh, Gobin, I just mentioned it, every stakeholder has different perspective on this matter. What should we all do together to ensure that in the net, our continent maximizes the opportunity that China has created and also avoid the pitfalls? If you can have insights into how to deal with this and the capacity building that is required, then I think we should be moving forward in, in the area of ensuring that China-Africa engagement is, as stated in their policy, a win-win situation. Thank you very much. Rama, please. Yes, um, I'm Rama Sitanen. Uh, I used to be Minister of Finance in, in Mauritius, so I don't have to dream about it, Paul. Uh, I'm not sure whether the economics I studied, you know, 35 years here was 101 or 100. Now, as a, as a policymaker, I've had to address this issue like many ministers of finance from, from, from Africa. I think the strategy is to maximize the two opportunities that uh, Professor Kolja mentioned. And these are two great opportunities. One, competition. And second, investment in infrastructure. And I totally agree with Paul that infrastructure is probably the single uh, most important obstacle to sustain and robust development uh, in Africa. Once you've decided on this, then I think this gentleman just mentioned is how, to, how do you mitigate the downside by engaging with China to make China become a much better development partner. And I think a lot of it depends on us also. Very often when we speak about Africa, it's not one country. <laughs> there are 50 countries. And, and, and China very often, you know, will discuss, negotiate, and conclude deal on a one-to-one -one basis. Now, some of the issues that you mentioned, we have had to do it ourselves because Mauritius is one of the few countries where they have uh, decided to invest in a trade and economic zone, notwithstanding the fact that we don't have extraction industry. And some of these issues did come up. First one is the transparency of the contract. Now, that depends on the institution that you have back home. Now, if we have to submit to Parliament all contract or loan agreements that are signed between Mauritius and another country, obviously this will be known to the public. The other issue uh, which you mentioned is labor. Very often they will come with lock, stock, and barrels. But here also you have to negotiate. And we've been able to put restriction on the number of Chinese who come. Uh, again, 
with a view to getting the consensus, you know, from the public, because the public will, also, will ask, mm. what's easy for me? And, uh, and you spoke about the transmission mechanism in some of these sectors, and we have been able to get people to be employed in sectors that are offended by the Chinese. The other issue that you mentioned is about, I think the gentleman from DFID also mentioned it, is where will the hospital be? Where will the infrastructure be? I think it's incumbent on the political leadership to decide, you know, what would be in the best interest of where the infrastructure will be. There is no reason, you know, to, to, to surrender this prerogative of deciding what should be your development strategy to China or to any other country. And with respect to value for money, I do agree with you. I think you use the term fast and cheap. But you must make sure also that you get value for money. And there are many ways of ensuring that you do get value for money. So in my humble submission, and based on a discussion that we have had, I think it's Africa, or our friends in Africa, us in Africa, will have to do our homework and to make sure that labor standards are respected, environmental norms are respected, and that we get the best of the China deal while obviously mitigating the adverse impact that this could have on our countries. The lady in the back, sorry. Yeah. Um, quick question, which is what's next for academia? Um, what kind of areas would you like to see academics and researchers doing, fleshing out further um, information or ideas about China and Africa in the near future? That was it. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Raj Kohli. Uh, been involved in the mining industry, including in Africa, for many, many years in different guises. I'd just like to take up a point that uh, Professor Collier made on auction systems, trying to find a, a system which might be more fair to all stakeholders concerned in terms of distribution of uh, profits from the natural resources inherent in the continent. I think one of the issues is that China asides, if you look at other bidders for assets in a significant number of jurisdictions in Africa, the nature of those bidders is such, or the nature of their bids is such, that they themselves, uh, and those bidders coming from the Western uh, world, so to speak, their bids are such that they do not stand, they would not stand uh, scrutiny under proper corporate governance standards. And I quote you two very recent examples, I'm sure you're fully aware of them. Not passing judgment on them, but ENRC, FTSE 100 listed company, in a tremendous spat with First Quantum and DRC on uh, copper cobalt. Second example, ArcelorMittal, world's largest steel producer, sig a significant miner. It is undergoing, it has received tremendous criticism for the nature in which it has uh, played its hand in iron ore in South Africa. And I'm just quoting but two examples. So I, I think there are very few alternatives or there are very few options to trying to structure a type of auction system, which I agree with you. I, I think it should be in place, and I think it would help a lot of the nations on the continent of Africa. But I think it is very challenging to, to arrive at a system which can actually achieve that. Take one last question. Yes.
Thank you, Mr. Chair. I am Amara Sharif from Sierra Leone. Uh, I read the Chinese infrastructure uh, projects in Africa, the Tonki project, which did little or nothing in, on capacity building. But what I did not see come out of the presentation is the role of the Chinese private sector in the African economies and the, the Chinese private sector actors are very vibrant in African economies these days. They are in construction, they are in medicine, they are in infrastructure, they are in road construction, etc., etc. And also the South-South cooperation between Africa and China in terms of capacity building, I did not see that come out. And I want to comment on that. We, we have some time constraints, so what I'm going to suggest is that we, get, we hear from the discussants first uh, up to two minutes each, and then give uh, Paul some five minutes at the end. They're obviously going to pick on some of these questions, not everything, but we have the networking sessions and other, other opportunities to, to, to dwell on these issues some more. So I'll turn first to Chris. Thanks. <coughs> Thanks. I wanted to just uh, uh, pick up and endorse that perspective on, of African governance being a crucial player here. Many of the things we've identified, as was noted in the questions and by the speakers, as uh, China-Africa problems, actually one has to look in the mirror and say, these are, are, are these not actually African problems, African governance problems? The rules are on the books. Uh, the agencies are underfunded or uh, constantly being undermined in their uh, fulfillment of their, of their um, uh, legal duties, uh, of oversight duties. Um, because we have to remember that Chinese companies can operate and sub uh, subscribe to legally dense, uh, uh, complex economic, fiscally complex uh, uh, environments in, in, the, in the OECD world, and uh, why don't they, they abide by the same set of rules in the African settings, in some African settings? One has to look, as I say, in the mirror perhaps and ask why those rules aren't uh, being enforced. And then the second point I would make is just um, with respect to uh, where does, uh, and the academic question at the back, where, where's the, the field to go? I think that firm level studies, looking at Chinese firms, uh, breaking down this notion as, as the speakers and, and uh, uh, others have said, um, that, that there is a China and an Africa, when in fact there are many Chinas and indeed there are many Africas. And that we can understand better that relationship by see, looking at it through these very specific uh, 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 targeted studies, sectoral studies, firm level studies. Um, and then finally, I would also hope that we would move away a little bit from China, Africa as such, and maybe contextualize it. Many of these things we're talking about, uh, uh, the critiques we have of Chinese firms in Zambia, for instance, ignore some of the behavior of, of other uh, uh, firms, which, which can be equally, if not more, um, uh, uh, poor in labor standards or commitments to, to fulfilling those sorts of uh, uh, um, legalities. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, let me just take up the issue of governance uh, very briefly. Um, uh, you asked sort of um, how do we get the African governments to do the right thing. The question, in a sense, is right for whom? Uh, some of the people who signed these contracts did just the right thing for them. And you know, I think that you know, comes back exactly to this point, that there is a general governance challenge that is not just specific to this 
In a sense, the issue is that if you have dysfunctional governance and somebody turns up with a very large amount of money, somehow it's just more costly. So I think one can't view the issue of governance as being a China-Africa issue. It is, in general, something which Africa is making some progress on, and we wish luck and we will be as supportive as we can. But ultimately, one does need to sort of address these things locally. It just can't be done from the outside. Transparency, press, and so on is a great help. And in a sense, patience and fortitude are also necessary parts. Secondly, on the issue of capacity building, I think that's a very interesting question. It is true we didn't talk much about capacity building. The Chinese communities in Africa are very vibrant. Sometimes, of course, that's the very thing that's causing the sort of social irritation that Gobin has talked about. It suggests to me that on both sides there's a real need to try and get some integration so that the two sides are not sort of at each other's throats but actually are willing to learn from each other. Then, indeed, it seems to be one of the really big advantages of migration overall is that people do learn from each other what's possible, the way to sort of construct social situations and carry things out. So I think there's a lot to play for in that particular area, not at the governmental, intergovernmental issue, but right down on the ground with a migration policy that encourages integration, but on both sides. Let me start with something that's really important, which is a question Alan raised, which is why is China a monopolist? There's nothing legally stopping other consortia going in and bidding, so why aren't they? I think there are two sorts of impediments. One is, from the donor side, there's a sort of reluctance. In Europe, it's a squeamishness that we don't want to use aid for anything as vulgar as digging up natural resources. It's too environmentally unfriendly. We'd rather do something that's warm and cozy. So for the European development agency, it's been a no-no for that reason. It's just the wrong visuals. For America, America actually used to be in on this in the early 80s, and it got pulled off by the American government under Reagan, not for reasons of squeamishness that it would be nice if only the U.S. aid spent its money on children and what have you, but because the influences on Ronald Reagan were such that this should be left, the American companies going in for resource extraction shouldn't have to face any competition. But for different reasons, the big global players other than China, the donors haven't been there. Now, there's another deeper reason, which Alan also alluded to, which is you only get a market once you've got reasonable geological information. You need a minimum amount of geological information, which then reveals that there are potential rents there, and then you'll get enough actors to have a competitive auction. And then you pre-screen and you filter a lot of them out. You need about four reputable bidders. To get there is damned hard. It's not just a matter of hold an auction and hope people show up. They won't. You'll actually reveal that you've only got one company interested and you're worse than you started. So the prior step in building a competitive auction process is investing 
in geological information. And this is, again, something that the donors could do. It's much less risky if the big donors invest across a lot of African countries than if each African country is left to make these risks itself. Because if you research on a bigger area, given this number I started with, so little being discovered in Africa, it's a sure bet. If each little country has to dig up its own area, then who knows? Right? So step one, invest in geological information, then pre-screen to, to keep the, 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 the charlatans out. Um, the um, one thing I should have raised, uh, which is the, the Chinese are pretty tough in the details of the contracts where we can see them, and we often can't, they play hardball. If you look at these things that lawyers call stabilization clauses, it's how, how easy is it to renegotiate this contract? And the Chinese go for absolutely at the extreme end of very tough stabilization clauses, uh, resolution with the dispute settlement boards, all the things which actually uh, the Western resource extraction companies wouldn't dream of trying to use. Right? So it's a much tougher um, game. Um, the, um, Gobind raised the issue of, very rightly, that the Chinese um, are sell an awful lot of very cheap consumer goods to Africa and that's caused some deindustrialization and that's a big issue. Um, it's also made it much harder for Africa to break in at the bottom in global manufacturing markets. This is a big issue. Africa needs to diversify its economies by breaking in. The sort of thing Mauritius did in the 1980s. How did Mauritius do it? Mauritius was hugely helped by the multi-fiber agreement which gave you privileged market access in OECD markets. That's dead. And at the moment, the only equivalent of that is a scheme run by America, the Africa Growth and Opportunity. What we need is a pan, is a global scheme. At the minimum, an OECD scheme, but better. You know, let's go, go. China should be offering privileged access to its markets, as well as, right? So, it's, it's important, and it's, a, it's just becoming feasible because wages are now rising very fast in China. And so over the next decade, a shrewd uh, manufacturer will start to think, where can I relocate my manufacturing, my labor-intensive manufacturing, from increasingly high-wage China uh, to somewhere else? Um, so the super-agoa scheme is, 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 I think, a very important opportunity. And finally, the really good question, what are the research issues? Let me just suggest two. Um, one, ups, one, down, one upstream, one downstream. The upstream issue, the discovery process, how valuable is geological information for this building a competitive process? I came across uh, a natural experiment, uh, not in Africa, but in PNG, up in New Guinea where a donor had meant to provide geological information across a whole territory, but ran out of money. And so they only provided geological information on half of this territory. The money just ran out. Come back a few <coughs> years later, and the resource extraction in the territory where there's geological information is fivefold per square mile that of the territory which didn't have the geological information. So the payoff to geological information, very big. 
Let's try and research that more thoroughly and just throw out examples. Up at the downstream agenda, I talked about the importance of the construction sector and the bottlenecks and the slope of that supply curve as a concept. The slope of the supply curve in the construction sector is a function of policy choices. There's a whole chain of policies which affect that slope, make it steep or flat. From uh, the, 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 the urban land market, the, what you do with cement, what you do at the ports, how, how you handle competitive tendering. And so research which first quantifies this, this concept of the elasticity of the construction supply curve and then shows how it's a function of policy, how you can flatten it. Just, so one upstream, one downstream. There are lots of researchable issues here, and it's big time stuff. We are very much short of time, so I'm just going to conclude quickly. I'm not going to try and summarize things, but I ask myself, <coughs> if I had to say it in one sentence, what, what have we been saying from this side of the table and of the discussion? And I think what we're saying is China is probably a good story for Africa, but potentially it's a great story. A lot depends on how much African countries themselves can step up to the plate. And here I want to stress something that was mentioned and something that was not. I think capacity building has been seen too much as something that external partners should help African countries to build. I think it is time for us to see this as our own responsibility. Use some of the oil revenues, the revenues we get for our own capacity building tailored to giving ourselves this ability to, to, to get win-win transactions out of the deals with China and other countries. The other thing is that there's an un, un, unsung hero in all of this. I think you're seeing on, across African countries, civil society organizations increasingly playing an important role in holding the feet of governments to the fire. And this is something that needs to be encouraged in whatever way possible. And the kind of ideas of re, about research that have been put on the table and others are really the kind of fodder that civil society organizations need to bring much more to the table than they're currently doing. But the scene is changing, and we see CSOs playing an important role. Let me just conclude by thanking Paul and our other discussants for what I think has been an excellent discussion, and for all of you for your patience and your participation. Thank you.